Check, check. Check, checkity check. Are you ready? Are you ready for the exciting conclusion of an epic doorstop size of a novel, The Wise Man's Fear? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Somebody does. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome to the podcast that almost never was. Indeed, but thankfully the Duke let me have my nickname, and here we are. <laughs> I meant this particular episode. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that too, though. It's a double meaning, right? So we are here coming at you at episode 29, where we are discussing the very end of Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, and what a journey it's been. Yeah, we're finishing, you know, the the published books that are a part of the main series here. The only thing left are the Lightning Tree and uh, Slow Regard of Silent Things. Correct. So that is going to be what we will be discussing up next. Yes, we'll cover uh, next week's episode. We will cover Slow Regard of Silent Things, and we will have our sort of end wrap megasode where we discuss kind of all things King Killer Chronicle. We'll discuss some theories and sort of wrap everything up. So I am really, really excited to hear what you thought of the end because I love it. But first, why don't you tell us tell our spoiler policy? Well, our spoiler policy is typically that we don't spoil anything past the point that we've read. So at this point, we've read everything. So the only thing that we're not going to spoil would be anything from The Slow Regard of Silent Things, which neither of us can spoil because we haven't read it yet. I've started it. Did you? Okay. But I won't spoil. Are you ready for some spoilers? We no longer have to hold back. We can talk about everything. It's going to be amazing. So this section starts with chapter 143 and all the way to the end of the book is what we're covering. And basically we see Quoth settling back into the university. We have a nice long kind of denouement. Uh, he catches up with his friends. He has a frustrating run-in with Denna. Of course and, he does. And... Uh, in the, in the present, Bast and Chronicler talk about the cafe, and Bast decides YOLO, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have our epilogue. We do. And, uh, oh, and, and both can't open his chest, and it's super sad. It's pretty sad. But then Bast uh, catches up with the mercenaries and kicks their asses, and they have a very enlightening conversation. So we learn something there. And that's basically it. It's the end of the book. Yes, absolutely. So, overall impressions... Lay them on me. For this section? Yeah. So this section, uh, I had two main impressions the first time I read through it. The first is that the quality of the writing is stunning. It's phenomenal. It's brilliant. The prose is just such amazing quality. The other impression that I had was that, once again, Nothing really happened. There really wasn't a huge climactic arc. Not that, now by the way, not that a lot of things didn't happen in the book. And we did definitely get some reveals in these last chapters. But 
it was similar to The Name of the Wind in that it just wasn't this huge plot-filled, cataclysmic, amazing crescendo of all kinds of things falling in line and you getting tons of answers, which it's only the second book, so I'm not really too upset about that. And again, the writing is beautiful. Well, yeah, this this book more follows the kind of extended denouement model where, yeah. you know, the hobbits go back to the Shire, they do something there, they, they mess around, they get on a boat. It's like we had our crescendo, we had our kind of climax of the book, and now we yeah, come it was down just earlier. Yeah. and get get set up for the next book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And I, I enjoyed this book more than I enjoyed Name of the Wind. I know that that's not necessarily a commonly held I would thought? disagree. I yeah. would say that more people prefer really? okay. Wise Man's Fear. I did not the first time I read it through, but this time through, I think I did. Yeah, I I enjoyed the Wise Man's. I enjoyed Name of the Wind, but I enjoyed the Wise Man's Fear better. I think in in large part because a lot more does happen, and you do get more answers to questions, and there's more things to speculate on, and there's more there's more answers to the riddles. You know, in Name of the Wind, we just didn't have as much information to kind of suss out some of the truth on. And now we've got a lot more information, but there's still a ton that we don't know. So, you know, the sort of big kind of resolution climax that I'm, I'm hoping for, um, I'm not upset about not getting yet because it's not the end of the story. So, um, but no, I thought, I thought the writing was really brilliant. It, it, it was a very satisfying ending despite nothing really happening in these chapters. It's interesting probably having the experience of stopping and then just reading these chapters in a chunk. Yeah. Because certainly when I, every time that I have read this book and I, I don't know how you do it, I've just torn through to the end. And I think it, it's probably more satisfying when you go straight from the adventures in Ventus to then come back and you kind of wind down at the university again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think the speed at which we read it has an impact on how we read it. You know, I think I probably picked up a lot more in my read through this series than most folks would pick up on their first read through because we read it so slowly. But at the same point in time, it does sort of break up the momentum. So let's get into our chapters a little bit. Chapter 143 is where we're starting, and it is called Bloodless. Yeah, and it's where Quoth finds out that his arrow catch has actually ended up making him a small fortune back at the university while he was gone. Uh, Elodin is the one who names the arrow catch, and he calls it the Bloodless, but Kilvin does not approve of the overly dramatic title. Quoth goes and ends up meeting with Devi and finds out Devi is quite shaken up, apparently by Ambrose, and then Quoth pays off his debt to Devi and gets back Denna's ring. So Quoth gets commissioned, bitches. <laughs> That's right, he does. He walks down to the fishery, he's getting ready to make another boring deck lamp or whatever, mm -hmm. and he finds out that he has actually been earning 10% off of every single arrow catch that's been sold and so he is flush with more money than he's probably ever had yeah absolutely and that's a big part of kind of this overall section you know money is a big part of it like it has been throughout this entire series but here we find 
quote on the other side of it, where he's actually able to afford the things that he needs. So Quoth then goes over to see Debbie and she's shocked that he's alive. And a couple of things jumped out at me here. First, what she says to him was, I was sure he'd done it, meaning Ambrose. And she said, his father's barony is called the Pirate Isles. So what do you think about this? What are, what's the likelihood that Ambrose actually was responsible for Quoth's ship going down? My thought is that it's not very likely. And Why so? Because and, and my reason is simply this. Now, I did not go back and read, you know, those chapters before he left. But from what I recall, Ambrose left before Quoth left. And it's unlikely, unless he's had some sort of spy in Imray and a way to communicate, you know, through some sort of scrying device or something, which we don't believe exists in this fantasy world, then it's highly unlikely that Ambrose would know that he was on that boat. I think that's a really good point. What do you, what do you think the odds are that someone was behind Quoth's boat going down? I think the, based on my experiences with Quoth and the fact that there are, appear to be these secret societies that nobody believe exists and yet they have actors and agents all over the place. Uh, I'm going to say probably better than 50-50. I would have to agree with you, especially when we've seen these actors and agents deliberately try to stop people from finding out about the Amir, about the lockless box, about the doors of stone. So if we're speculating that the Amir have agents in the world who are trying to keep people from finding out more about this and that they've already got their eye on Quoth as someone who they need, they need to watch and they find out he's going to Ventus in order to hang out with Mayor Alvaron, who is another person that we've speculated that they have acted in his life to keep him away from secrets. I think it's completely within the realm of speculation that the Amir may have been behind his ship going down. Hard to say, but my guess would be probably better, better than even odds that somebody was behind it. And you have to think that if Threp got this information, we see that the way in which letters get passed around. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. Not it, having a postal system. Exactly. And so you have to think how many hands touch this letter. You know, now apparently letters going back and forth between Threp and the mayor were not all that uncommon, but y- you have to assume that anybody who put their hands on it could have easily read it. You know, and the other thing we know is that somebody has been trying to get Quoth killed. You know, we speculated that the thugs that were sent to stab him were from Ambrose, but that that's a tenuous relationship at best. There's just as there's almost as much evidence, I would say, or or just as much reason to believe that it wasn't him, you know, and that it could have been anybody else. So and we know he's been watched. And have we gone into the possibility on the podcast about Scarby being an Amir? No, I don't think we've discussed that, no. Because it would kind of make sense if we're speculating that someone has been watching Quoth since he left Tarbian, which we have talked about before, but we'd wondered how how would he have even come to their attention, Scarpy would be the answer to that. Yeah, he he's really kind of the only the only candidate unless there's some hidden, you know, candidate that we don't know, which I tend to think 
you wouldn't pull that out this late in the series. So that's a good speculation. I like that. Well, and the fact that Scarpy knew his name, called him by his name without being introduced to him, just really makes you wonder what's going on there. The other thing that's really interesting about Scarpy is you have to go back and carefully read the stories that Scarpy puts forward and the story, excuse me, the stories that Trappist puts forward. And it wasn't until I'd read them several times that I realized they're in direct contradiction to each other. That, you know, if Tail if uh, Trappist is a Talon priest and he is parroting the Talon church's line about the origin of the Amir and where they came from and who Talu is, well, what Scarpy says is in direct contradiction to that. Now, we don't really know which one to believe. I think we all tend to believe Scarpy over the Talon church, uh, but that doesn't necessarily say anything about where his allegiances lie. Right. And definitely going to be doing some more speculating about the Amir in this episode. But let's talk about the end of the chapter. He uh, takes Debbie out to lunch. He brings her back. He gives her a gift of a book, a copy of Salem Tinture, which is the book that he's always trying to get Bass to read as well. Apparently very dry and boring, but he says it's going to be interesting. It would be interesting for an alchemist. Yeah. And then he mentions, not that I know anything about alchemy, which gave me a chuckle. <laughs> and then he pays her back and he finally clicks for him that she doesn't really want to get paid back. She prefers to be owed favors. And yeah, uh, even though they've definitely, these characters have moved into more of a friendship, she's not giving up that loan shark business relationship with him either. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more than that. I, I think, although I think that's 100% true, you know, his observation and what you say that is true. I, I think she's a little bit afraid that when he doesn't have a debt to her, she'll never see him again. You know, and so I think that's a part of it as well. There were two particular things about this chapter that I took note of that I wanted to bring up. So the first is when he first sees De- Devi, he notes that she's pale. She's obviously terrified. It makes me think she's been hiding indoors for a long period of time in f- probably ever since uh, Ambrose has come back to the university. She's been hiding. And... That's the impression I get. And then when she first talks to him, she says, you're, uh, and then pauses and says, you're supposed to be dead. And I'm like, you're a what? Like, you're a ghost. You're a snappy dresser. You're a bad kisser. What? What? (laughs) What am I? What? You know, like, you know, there's that unanswered, what the hell was she going to say? You know, I don't know what it is. I don't have an answer to that, but... Uh, you know, you're a ghost is the like the only thing that comes to mind. Like that she thought that he was dead. You know, I don't know. You're a but, wizard, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm not quite sure what that is. And the other part is in this chapter, they go out and they come back, and she has left her door open. But inside the chapter and inside the remainder of the book, there is no consequence for that. I do not believe that Patrick Rothfuss would put that in there if it did not have some bearing on something. So somebody ended up going in her place while they were out. To what end? Who knows? But something happened. That's just too random of a fact to drop in there without it not having some sort of relevance. I don't know. My take on... What you've just said is that, number one, she's pale, 
because she was in shock at seeing him. Could be. And number two, that leaving the door open was another sign of her being in such how deeply shocked she was to see him alive. That's the way that I read it. But that's the kind of thing that only time will tell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't have any particular theories on what that could mean. Um, my take is I still think that that's going to come back around. I don't, I don't take that as evidence of her being shocked. That's, you know, my theory is that that, that will have some relevance in the third book. We will see. We will see. Absolutely. So chapter 144 is called sword and shade. Yeah. And here's where Elodin and Quoth get to sit down and kind of talk about their adventures and what he did when he was out there living on the edge. And then Elodin tells Quoth that he had called Felurian's true name. Then Quoth tries to learn Yillish, but struggles to pick it up, and then eventually ends up going to a big party with Threp. So Quoth is heading into this term. He is footloose and fancy free. He's loaded. He's high rolling. He's got some spinner rims. That's right. He's got a hot tub shaped like a champagne glass. Which is not everything you would think it is. (laughs) Just saying. You got to watch how much bubble bath you put in those hot tubs. When they tell you to only put a cap full of bubble bath in the hot tubs, like you really have to listen to them. (laughs) Otherwise, you end up with a room that's filled with bubbles. (laughs) Which is not as much fun as you would think. You would think it would be fun, but not, not so much. I'm not telling you how we know this. Oh, that happened to a friend of ours. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, he's heading into this term. He's doing great. He hides. Um, we He ties up some loose ends. So he does tell us what happens to Kesura while he's jaunting around the university. Yeah. He hides it in the under thing. He's able to walk around wearing his shade and nobody really seems to notice anything except for Elodin. And we get to have this this conversation that I had been waiting for in the book. Yeah. You know, that where he 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 just lays it all out there to Elodin. And um First of all, the word in shaden. Yeah, I thought that okay, was cool too. As a verb, that's amazing. And I'm really sad. It's that not as good a verb as steampunk. I don't know. In shaden, no E between the D and the N. That's pretty amazing. I'm like kind of sad that I have no reason to use that in my daily life. That's vocabulary parlor tricks. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Quoth gets to tell his whole story to like the one person who not only will believe him, but who can offer him insight. Yeah, so it's this, a very satisfying conversation. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, and you definitely get to see a different relationship between him and El- he and Elodin now that he has come back from the Fae and from a Demray and he's lived out there on the edge. He takes Elodin much more seriously. It's a very different thing. And that in and of itself is very satisfying. So much of this series so far has been Elodin trying to wake up his sleeping mind and him just being so stubborn. And so it's it's nice to see that he's finally turned that corner. And Elodin knows hand talk. Yeah, what the fuck was that all about? Like, I, w- I mean, it, I, to me, that kind of makes sense. You know, his whole his whole bag is language. So I would actually kind of be surprised if he didn't know any hand talk. But um, but that was pretty cool. He, he knows maiden hand talk. Maiden hand talk. I know it's so hard not to get him confused. Yeah. Yeah, that was a little bit weird. Because if I'm going back and I'm remembering everything from Adem Ray, nobody had a problem with them teaching Quoth 
how to talk, it was the Catan. And, yes. And and the um oh the Lithani. The Lithani. It the wasn't path. even really them teaching him about the Lithani. It was the fighting skills. Yeah, yeah. That's what they had a problem with. So it would stand a reason then that he would have had an op- opportunity to pick that up from somebody and nobody would have had a problem with that. Right. So sidebar, one thing that's interesting to me is that at no point is Quoth ever tempted or even consider asking Elodin about the Chandrian. Even though every other group that he has encountered immediately, if they have seemed to have any kind of arcane knowledge, he's like, well, what about the Chandrian? Let me nag you about the Chandrian. I don't care what you think of me. Just tell me. Or or he at least drops in the Amir as a sneaky way to try yes. to get to it. Yes. But it's always on his mind. Yeah, you're right. He never does. Even though the Cathay told him that masters at the university know stuff about the Chandrian. Yeah, and that was the other, as you were bringing that up, it crossed my mind. I went back and I read the Cathay section a couple times this week. And yeah, that's exactly what happens. Now, they say that he, the Cathay also says they won't tell him. True, but it never even occurs to Quoth, hey, I wonder what he knows. Yeah. It's like that, while he's at the university, that whole, that whole line of inquiry, he kind of puts it on a shelf. He doesn't really think about it. It's very interesting. So, and yes, so Elodin also tells Quoth that he thinks that he probably called Florian's true name, which is pretty bad donkey when you think about it. Yeah, he says that, you know, it's, you know, one in a thousand students will ever master a name. I think that's what he says. And, you know, one in a thousand of those students will ever call a true name. So that puts Quoth in quite rarefied air. Also... Both is studying comparative female anatomy. <laughs> uh, well, and you do see in his language all throughout this section a, a big difference in the way he interacts with women. Right. So let's talk. He's turned for, into a to a, a a little slut. We don't use that word. There's nothing wrong with that word. We're sex positive on this podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, I meant it in a sex positive way. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about the the Yilish story knots, because that's the other part that he is attempting to learn in this chapter. He decides he wants to read, learn to read Yilish story knots. He's inspired by the experience of feeling what he thinks might be Yilish story knots on the outside of the lockless box. It's something he wants to learn more about. So he starts searching through the archives and he finds that there really isn't a way for him to learn from books how to read these story knots. They have the story knots there, but all the books he finds are not helpful. And until he is approached by the chancellor, who is a the master linguist, he has no way of really learning it. And the chancellor just happens to know Yilish himself and offers to teach him. And he's not very successful. But this makes me pull out my tinfoil hat here. Right I have now. a tinfoil theory about this too, but so go ahead. We'll see if it's the, but I said it first, so I get to <laughs> get credit if it's the same one. Okay? All right, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I guess at this point, I no longer get like first dibs on the no, predictions. No, you don't know. And I've been holding back. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So we're going back to the lockless box. Mm-hmm. We know that it's connected to the Amir. We've speculated that it holds the key to the Doors of Stone, behind which is the baddest mother shaper of them all. Oh, yeah. And we know the that Shogun it's, of it's covered in Yillish story knots, or we've speculated that it's covered in Yillish story knots. Okay, all of which the Amir 
seem to be very devoted to keeping this box secret, keeping all knowledge of it secret, keeping all knowledge of themselves and the doors of stone secret. Is it a coincidence that the Yilish language is all but gone because of the Aeterran Empire? It mentions that the reason he's he mentions that he's not surprised he can't find any information on the Yilish language because the entire culture and nation has basically been wiped out ground under the boot of the Aeterran Empire. And that because of the Aeterran Empire, who were basically responsible for the Amir, were were governed by the Amir for many yeah, centuries, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden the the language that might be the key to opening the box that will open the doors of stone is all but lost. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. That might be a road too far, but it would not it would not at all shock me if the Amir stumbled upon this, you know, there was this war and they're like, "Okay, well, since we've basically since this war has occurred and, you know, the Yilish language is now already in significant decline, well, we'll go ahead and scrub from written history whatever we can find." But my speculation is a, a similar of a similar vein, but slightly different. So he goes through the archives and he does not find any really anything in there about how to read Yiddish or any of the language. He does find the section where there's a bunch of knots, but without a legend, there doesn't really help him any. But what he does find is he does find in a little shop somewhere in town, he finds a book that basically gives him the legend to how to read all those knots, and he studies it. Now, what I'm speculating is that how could that exist in some shop in Imre when they have gone out of their way to scrub it out of the archives? I'm speculating that somebody came and put that book in there for him to find. It's entirely possible. Um, I still think we can't discount the idea that the Amir wiped out the Yilish on purpose. I, I wouldn't discount it. You know, my yeah. speculation is, so the Amir, let's say they're responsible for locking the baddest mother shaper behind the doors of stone. Why even create a key that anyone could get to? My speculation is there was another agent or another party in play, maybe who was Yilish or used Yilish language in the technology that they used to create the box to seal up the key. Mm -hmm. and kept it hidden away under the protection of the Lockless family, and that the Amir have been trying to get rid of it, possibly the reason why the Lockless family has been plagued by bad luck. Yeah, absolutely. And why nobody, speaks, yeah, yeah. why nobody speaks Yiddish anymore. As Dennis says later in the book, even the Yiddish don't speak Yiddish. Don't read the story knots anymore. I think it's a good speculation, especially the more I think about it, because... The fact that the baddest mother shaper of them all who started the creation war is under lock and key, you have to think, okay, well, what what's really for the greater good? Well, if, if it's really that significant of a power, maybe they would be willing to grind out an entire population and commit genocide to keep it under wraps. I'm not going to go full in on that theory, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. I just wrote coincidence. <laughs> with three question marks after it. Well, like I wrote that like four times in my notes this week. So just so you know. <laughs> so, but either way, Quoth is able to study Yilish under the master linguist. 
And his naming study starts to go well now that he's done being such a jack donkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So chapter 145 is called Stories. Yeah, in chapter 145, Quoth goes out and spends that money. He does. You got to go spend that paper. And then there's rumors of his adventures which start to make it back to Imre. And then Quoth and Sim and Will try to figure out just how long he was in Feyen. So in this chapter, Ambrose returns like some sort of hateful migratory bird. I love that. <laughs> like like a goose. And it you, inspires you mean a goose. Geese are hateful, man. Right. They are. Don't mess with a goose. So so Ambrose is a goose. <laughs> I'm down with that. So this inspires Quoth to start practicing his Catan again. Mm-hmm. So we can yep. kind of see that thread. Like, okay, he didn't just give up this this discipline that he learned. But he's still going out. He's enjoying his steak and lobster lifestyle. He's eating all those Cheddar Bay biscuits. Ah. <laughs> I would have laughed, but I was in the middle of a yawn. <laughs> um, so, yes. And he it's interesting to watch him start to hear stories of his time in Ventus. He hasn't really... It hasn't become clear to him that he's going to become this legend yet. So he's just like, oh, this is kind of cool, you know. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Beatles, like, but before they went on the Ed Sullivan show, they were just like, oh, hey, we're on the radio. This is great. And they have yeah. no idea that what's about to happen. They have no idea that Yoko Ono is going to eventually happen. <laughs> so um, he's talking about the story of him rescuing the girls. And he makes it sound almost like in, you know, in the very beginning of the book and he's telling about all of his legends and he's one that we hadn't seen happen yet was rescuing princesses from sleeping Barrow Kings. Do you think that this is the story that he's referring to in that? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't know that we really get the sleeping Barrow King thing yet, but what I would speculate is that this is probably somehow this story gets conflated in with some other story. Right. And the girls are the princess. Right. You know, the mayor's daughter is, you know, the princess. Right. Yeah, I think so, too. Another question for you. Uh, how old do you think both is? That was an interesting part. And, and it sort of gives you cause to think, okay, what we haven't seen from Quoth yet is him spend any other time in the land of the Fae. But he must spend a lot of other time in the land of the Fae Otherwise, where the hell did Bass come from? Right. We know that's ahead of us. So it leads me to speculate that Quoth really is like 40 or 50 years old in a 25-year-old's body because he spent a huge amount of time in the Fae, and there is some sort of weird, wacky time warp thing going on there. Right. And that he probably did spend, you know, six, seven, eight months a year in the Fae, and he just didn't realize it. Well, you know, Debbie noticed his change in height when he sees her. Yeah. She looks up and says, you're taller, or maybe I didn't realize how tall you were. Yeah, it's a good point. And he's still a young man, so it would make sense that he would be continuing to grow at that age. Boys can still be growing at 16, 17. Oh, absolutely. Yep. So that's all I had for this chapter. The um, only other thing I had in this chapter was that Willem has a marvelous face bear. Oh, good. I'm so glad you brought up the marvelous face bear. <laughs> He's like, that's I had awesome. to shave at least twice while I was in the Feyen. <laughs> you know, which for, for most people, I mean, when I was 16, you know, that would have meant like, you know, I have to shave 
every couple weeks. Now, but we don't know if he meant he was actually getting a like a full beard. Like we don't really know what that means, you know. But Willem's over there, like you mean like every day, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, so chapter one hundred and forty-six was called Failures. Face bear. That's so, a, that's so face great. bear and Shaden. We just have to keep our list of words. Yeah, we start using those in everyday life. So. 146, we find out that Quoth hates math, but he loves the ladies. And then Kilvin shows Quoth some strange mysteries in the university. Ellen and Quoth then have naked time, and Quoth calls the wind three more times. So we find out that Quoth knows nothing about Yillish either. A lot of this chapter is about the things that he doesn't get, like and he doesn't know. And we see so little of Quoth, particularly in an academic realm, finding things that he doesn't get that it's just sort of refreshing for him to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at math. <laughs> and I find myself very interested this time around anytime that he talks about the Yillish, because I feel like this is a, a people that's shrouded in mystery more than any other, perhaps because, I mean, because they're wiped out for sure, but knowing that they are also tied to, likely tied to the lockless box, the doors of stone and to Denna it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. Well, I, I'm I'm with you, and I've been saying, you know, I've been talking about this probably since the beginning of the name of the wind. Like I'm like, there's something going on with this Yillish thing and the way Dennett braids her hair. There's something going on. Of course, I didn't really have enough to know about it, and honestly, until we started talking about it right now, I didn't quite get the significance of it. But now that I'm thinking about it it's all starting to kind of tie together for me in this way. And, and it wouldn't at all surprise me if the Chandrian want the Yilish language to survive. And mm-hmm. if, you know, Master Ash is who we think Master Ash is and, and an agent of the Chandrian, then that's why he's going to such lengths to teach Denna Yilish mm-hmm. and to have her using Yilish. Yeah. And it wouldn't at all shock me if, you know, Master Ash or somebody connected is the one who put that book in that shop for him to find. That's very interesting speculation. So, and I think it's interesting to look at what he does tell us about the Yillish language, how how complex it is, because we know that Patrick Rothfuss is very into linguistics and we've speculated quite a bit on what the Adem hand language says about them as a culture. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that in Yillish, all ownership is dual. So the chancellor owns the socks, but the socks also own the chancellor. So it's like Fight Club. <laughs> exactly like Fight Club. I it's was ex- just going to say that. It's, it's exactly exa- like it. You know, I mean, if you own too many things, eventually your things own you. That's so deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think you understand how deep... Fight Club really is. It is. I'm. I'm not. I'm not mocking Fight Club. I never would. <laughs> but I just think it's interesting to kind of like look at what we learn about that. I don't think that's a coincidence. No, I think he throws the, that stuff I, in there. I think the breadcrumbs around the Yillish have been, you know, that trail has been well seeded. I think. I think there's absolutely something there. Time will tell what exactly it means. I, I think we're both on to it, though. I yeah. do. We're on it like hounds. <laughs> okay, another phrase for the list is pompous slipstick. Oh, that's a good one. 
That's a good one. Yeah, we I see, think I could use that one. You might be able to pull that one off. I, I definitely. I think I could work that into my daily life. I'm gonna try it tomorrow at work. I'll see what. I, <laughs> if you get fired, you'll know why. I think I can call our ten year old a pompous lipstick. No, he's he way too sensitive. <laughs> Probably work it in with one of the other ones though. <laughs> And I love the the title of his essay that he was writing on the non-efficacy of arrowroot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I caught that too. So no, really what was interesting here to me about this chapter was the interactions with Kilvin. Yes. And there's some of the character development was interesting to me. You know, coming off of all of these chapters where we're talking about his legend growing and his stories and all these things he's doing that are great. And then he talks about relationships. And even though he's dating, what he says about himself is that that he doesn't have much in him that might encourage a woman to make a long habit of his company. Yeah. And that for all, you know, he compares himself to a rock that for all its interesting look, it's nothing more than hardened earth. So all this outside stuff he's building up is just image. It hasn't really changed the way he feels about himself or the way he sees his value to other people. You know, he went, he dropped off the face of the earth for a year. It didn't even occur to him that anyone would miss him or wonder how he was doing, you know, and he'll go, he's going and having all these kind of empty relationships because he doesn't really believe that he's worth anything. And it helps us to understand why he acts the way he does with Denna, because it's so frustrating, especially in the the upcoming interaction that he has with her, where she's very, pretty much blatantly telling him, you know, how she feels, but then she can't accept the way that he feels about her either. Yeah. So yeah. it helps you to understand a little bit. No, it's a, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I wasn't going to bring it up here. And so I think I won't, but when we get to the chapter where we have the conversation with Fela about his character, this will kind of come back around. Right. Yeah. It's a nice setup for that. So let's talk about his conversation with master Kilvin though, because he goes to master Kilvin to ask him about Kaysura. Not, openly because he knows that Master Kilvin won't approve of that, but he wants to ask him about the possibility of a metal that's lasted for 2,000 years. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, Kilvin says, well, there's lots of mysteries, you know, and he, he talks about, you know, all these mysteries that he's seen, a handful of things that exist at the university, and he brings out these cool warding stones that, you know, allow basically them to build a globe of invulnerability around Quoth, and it's, oh, that's cool, you know. But in the end of it, Kilvin says to Quoth, hey, man, leave the mysteries to the poets, the priests, and the fools. You know, we're here to do what we know we can do, what is repeatable. We're not here to solve the ancient mysteries. You know, leave that for the poets, the priests, and the fools. And what I thought is that, well, Quoth's not—he hates poets. He sure as hell isn't a priest, so he must be a fool. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I didn't pick up on that before. That is so true, though. Well, and it, it sort of goes like, I mean, this whole book is because he wants to go out and solve those greater mysteries, right? He wants answers to the greater mysteries, not because of just some weird sort of perverse curiosity, although he has definitely always had that curiosity anyway, but because those fucking mysteries killed his family. Right. Right. So he's got every reason to want to to solve them. And because these creatures of legend that everybody say, you know, everyone says don't exist are the ones that killed his family, right? And so Kilvin is saying, you know, you need to leave that alone. Well, the whole story's about that. And 
that's very much, you know, his particular perspective. But there's a whole other part of the world where these things don't really seem to be mysteries at all. So, you know, we we get all these sort of like bombs dropped in the narrative. And I think we have to decide and parse out which ones are really telling us, you know, these big, heavy, serious thematic things and which ones are, you know, maybe more just revealing about the character. And I take this as one that's more just more revealing about Kilvin. Not that I, I do think that quotes fiddling with these mysteries is going to be his ultimate downfall, but I don't think you can fault him for it. Well, I also think this adds a layer of world building because it gives us a tangible glimpse at the things that were possible before the creation war, before the cataclysm. And we see little hints of that. It's not heavy handed at all, but we see little glimpses of the things that the way the world used to be. And this is a tangible evidence of that and evidence of the fact that the most educated people in the world, the masters of the university, are not interested in recreating that or even really going back to the glory days that are in recent memory for them. You know, Eldon has talked about the university that was and how much more powerful Arcanus used to be and yeah. how now they're they're a shadow of their former power. But how really nobody except for maybe him is interested in going back to that. It's just an interesting commentary on evolution in general and how societies grow and change, in my opinion. Yeah, the other thing I like just from a fantasy perspective is how many fantasy books do we find where like the heroes got this magical sword and there's all these sort of magical objects, you know, laying around. And this really kind of puts a good, it it builds sort of an economy of scarcity around it that makes it feel realistic. You know, the idea that, you know, things like this are singular, extraordinarily rare, extraordinarily ancient. We don't really understand how they work. And not everybody's going to show up with a glowing f- fire sword, you know, like, which we see in a lot of other fantasy. We see that. We see this proliferation of magic items, you know. Uh, our favorite comparison is to compare things to Wheel of Time, where, you know, the A.S. Sedai have these, you know, Angriol and Terra Angriol and Sa'an, however the hell you pronounce them. And they have, like, literally, like, like palaces filled with them. <laughs> Like there's, you know, there's just, everybody's got one. Farmers in the field have them, you know, like, I mean, they're just fucking everywhere, you know? And like, it gets to a point where it completely robs anything like that of any, of any real value. Well, and the items fit in with the history of the world. Yeah. As well. Yeah, true. Yeah. And I just, I love the way the world is crafted and the way we get hints about it throughout the story of this person and there's without any kind of clunky exposition. Yeah. You know, maybe outside of Florian telling stories and such, but it's not, it's just done so organically and it really does add realism. As we talk about the writing, and I've said this before that the, the way, the way he's chosen to do this can sometimes be frustrating from a world building perspective. But as we get here to the end of, of the wise man's fear, and we've had, you know, 1800 pages of this world, it does begin to feel much more real, you know, as opposed to three or 400 pages into The Name of the Wind where you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, where, you know, like, it, then it felt like you were 
you know, you were like on this map surrounded by darkness and you didn't know what the hell was out there. Now it feels much, much more fleshed out. And again, he didn't have to spend three entire books dumping exposition on you like some other authors might have. Yeah, I totally agree. So 147? Chapter 147 is called Debts. Chapter 147 is called Fucking Denna. Fucking Denna. Fuck's sake. <laughs> so Quoth goes back to Tarbian and he visits Trappist and his old neighborhoods, decides to play what I thought was a very clever trick on Ambrose, and then also saves Denna's life. Can I tell the fucking Denna story? Go ahead, yeah. So we're driving with the kids, going somewhere, coming home from somewhere, and we pull up behind a car. Some lady obviously sold Mary Kay, was it? Something. Yeah, I, think I think she so. was like a Mary Kay, and she had her name, you know, a Mary Kay consultant, and at her phone number, and her name, I'm not lying, was Denna. <laughs> yeah. And we just both looked up at the stoplight and went, fucking Denna. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Under our breaths because we didn't. Under our breaths. Because <laughs> we didn't want the kids to hear. This book has changed us. <laughs> so, Quoth goes to Tarbian and he's repaying old debts. And I love the couple that he mentioned, you know, a tailor that I had terrorized, a cobbler who'd been kind to me. Yes, yeah, Those yeah, kind of yeah. old stories. And he visits Trappist and it's like, it's so heartwarming. And he, he helps him as much as he can. And it, it really adds to his character building as well because... I love to see how he came back from this journey and realized that his friends missed him. Yeah. You know, and then I, I, I like to feel that that spurned him to go back to Tarbian. Not that it's the not the first time he's gone back to try and help, but to go back and visit these old people and help Trappist as much as he can. And it gives us an answer to why he doesn't do more for him because he tries to give Trappist money and Trappist will only take so much a little yeah. bit because he says if i spend any more i attract the wrong sort of attention and he stays as long as he can but he can tell that he's going to start driving the children away and making them uncomfortable so he says sometimes the best thing you can do is leave so he goes and he sends a mischievous letter to ambrose and that was pretty clever yeah just just to mess with him he sends a letter to ambrose claiming to be a woman who's knocked up by him and and goes through a very convoluted way of making sure it's going to get to him and not get traced back to himself yeah that was fun it was definitely fun no i enjoyed this chapter a lot it was you know sort of bookending you know what we've read so far yes. you know in a very satisfying way you know, and for him to kind of go back to Tarbian under a completely different set of circumstances, it was enjoyable. When the woman walked in the bar, I was immediately like, God damn it. <laughs> well, we needed to come to some resolution with Denna because we, did, we know yeah. she's not just going to, we know it's not going to be the end of it. They have Absolutely. a fight over her song and she's going to leave. So for me, I, the only thing I didn't care for so much was that he describes this lovely dark haired woman coming in and doesn't tell you for like five paragraphs that it's Denna. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like he didn't recognize her. It's, yeah. you know, no. And that was the only thing I, I agree with that. Not Honestly, be like, Oh, Denna walked in the room. You're like, Oh, fucking Denna. But it's like, Oh, a lovely dark haired woman walked in the room and yeah, with some and I saved her life. Putts, and then, Oh, yeah. by the way, it was Denna. Yeah. You know, well, and it never, so I really don't have a, like 
I'm kind of playing it up, the fucking right. Denna thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I it's really, just fun to say. It's just fun to say. Exactly. I didn't have a problem with it was Denna. I did think the way that he chose to disclose it was a little weird, but whatever. Uh, the thing that I don't understand is why did she lose her breath? Like, I think I have insight into that. Ooh, okay, give me, because I totally missed it. So... It mentions in the beginning of the chapter that as he's walking through the streets that it's dry and the dust from the road keeps making him cough. Mm, okay. That it's filling his nose, it's filling his, when he breathes through his nose, he coughs, when he breathes through his mouth, he can taste it, and that it was really uncomfortable for him. And we know that Denna oh, is someone who is- she's got issues with her- Yes. She's got asthma or something. Asthma or something. Yeah, yeah. She's always had breathing issues. Yeah, so we yeah, assume yeah. she's having an asthma attack. And she comes in and she collapses. And Quoth is able to call the name of the wind gently enough to open her airways and get yeah. her to start breathing again. Which is a, a, a different and much more subtle use of it than he's been able to do. And also what uh, Abanthe was able to do for him... Mm-hmm. All those, you know, all that time. Oh, good catch. Yeah, way back in the beginning. So, yeah, it was interesting. And then he said the uh, seven words that would make a woman love him. I need you to breathe for me. I need you to breathe for me. Anticlimactic. <laughs> well, he's got a lot of other seven words in there, too. So he's just yeah. he's just throwing all the seven word combos he can and hoping one of them will stick. <laughs> But another thing we notice at the end of this chapter is that, and and it's been speculated before, but that Denna's hair, the braid in her hair, actually spells in Yiddish, says the word lovely. Yeah. And now it's overtly, Quoth notices it. Yes. Yeah, and I'm so proud of you that you picked up on that like so long ago. Yes, That was got your theory. One. You did. I was really impressed. So he says, oh, your hair says lovely. And she's really embarrassed, as she should be, because yeah. it is like... <laughs> That's like wearing those pink uh, sweatshorts that say juicy on the butt. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you should be embarrassed. You are a grown woman. <laughs> that shit is not cool. Pick your kids up and get the fuck off the school property. <laughs> juicy. So The, uh, the thing about the Yillish thing, though, it does, it does cause me to speculate. Because as I said, I feel like... That's something that Master Ash is putting upon her. But the way that she is so incredibly comfortable with it causes me to wonder if it goes further back than that. You know, is her family Yillish? Is she trying to chase down? Did the the Amir stomp out the Yillish? Does she have some sort of secret family history is she trying to uncover that and she's going to master ash because he has information that's kind of counter the amir and so he he's able to provide her with something that only he can provide her with it was her family destroyed by the amir just like his family was destroyed by the chandrian and we've speculated that before we have that if denna is sort of this parallel character to quoth Maybe her family was killed by the Amir, and they're still out there killing people for the greater good. They are, and we think that they killed the mayor's father. We do, and if she was Yillish, that would make sense. The fact that she was—I realize that's exactly what you just said, and I'm restating that's it. A- <laughs> but that's—it's very exciting. So we'll just 
throw it out there again. But the fact that she connected with Diok. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And he is Yillish and speaks Yillish and has some small knowledge of the story knots. I don't think that's a coincidence. And the fact that when she walks in and asks Quoth and his friends about magic, the first thing she asks is, is there any kind of written magic where if you write it, things will happen? Maybe there's something, you know, to maybe there's something to the Yillish story knots that are magical in nature or predictive. Maybe that's why he can't get into the box is because those knots say you will never get it into this fucking box. Right. So is she is she braiding the word lovely into her hair and making herself be seen as lovely? Like, is, is there that a, her knack? Yeah. Is, is that her knack? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think the more I, the more I we talk about it, I tend to think that makes more sense to me than and maybe that's why maybe Master Ash is into her because he can learn Yillish. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe he's not teaching her Yillish at all. Maybe she's teaching him Yillish. Or I think probably they're teaching each other something. Yeah, but her you know her fluency that she can just like absent-mindedly braid her hair into words mm-hmm. leads me to believe that this is something she's been doing for more than just you know a couple of years. Like that it's much deeper than that. So I think if I had to pick between those two theories, I think it makes more sense for me that Denna is somehow Yillish than that she's learning Yillish from Master Ash because she just seems to have a greater degree of fluency with it than somebody who's only recently learned it. I think I'd have to, might have to concur with you. So Damn, chapter one. I was one- so excited. I knocked my mic down. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. So chapter 148. This is the kind of like, this is, the, this is exciting. Like we're like, woohoo. We are like this, that. This is this is like other other people's like NASCAR, <laughs> Super Bowl. It's we're so like, true. We're like, we think Denna might be yellowish. Woohoo! Knock the mic down. <laughs> it's so true. What does that say about you're us? You're sitting there in your Arrakis t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I got sandworms on my t-shirt. This this is this is staring into the deep dark face of nerddom. Like, <laughs> This is what's going to happen to you. Uh, what I'm saying is, go play sports. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Chapter 148. So, it's called The Stories of Stones. Yes, absolutely. And so, this is where Quoth and Denna go back to Imre from Tarbian. And they engage in a deep British television drama where nobody says what's really on their minds. Ah, yes. It's all subtext. Such a good way of describing it. Right? And then they eventually go swimming. Quoth thinks to ask Denna once again about her patron, but she turns the tables on him. Indeed. So I thought it was interesting that Denna and Kamboth, they head back to Imre together, but it's tense. There's like all the stuff that he doesn't want to bring up or she doesn't want to bring up. and They never talk about the fight. They don't talk about the fight. They don't talk about Felurian. They don't. Yeah, it's it's he doesn't ask about the patron. It's all very. However, he never apologizes. He never apologizes. She never apologizes. It's all very tense. However, when he decides to go try and find her the next day, he knocks on the door of her inn. She opens the door as if expecting him. 
hands him this picnic lunch and it's like everything is back. She's completely different. Yep. It's like everything is back to normal. So what what do you think's going on there? Well, I mean to me I don't I didn't take that to necessarily mean a whole lot, you know, that she was kind of suddenly around other than just kind of a furthering of their relationship that but it did but now that you say it it does cross my mind that that's pretty much the first time that's ever happened. Every other time it's never gone that way. It's always been he rounds the corner and there she is crying holding a leather a letter that he never asks her about anyway or that you know she shows up in some town where she shouldn't fucking be at you know and there it's never that he goes looking for her and there she is or he shows up and there's two other gentlemen callers it's you know so this is sort of the first time that that it works out that way but i really just kind of took it as a furthering of their relationship that she is more willing to kind of hang out for him, you know, and not push him off. So how do you think she knew he was coming? I didn't, honestly, I didn't give it a lot of thought. I just think it's interesting. Not only did she know he was coming, but all of a sudden she's relaxed and seemingly happy to let things go. Well, it's interesting to me because, you you know, we said that he didn't apologize. You said she didn't apologize. I don't think she had anything to apologize for. In their last, that big blow-up confrontation, he was a complete and total fucking jackass. Now, he had a reason to lose his mind the way that he did, but she doesn't know that. So I don't, I think she should still, if anything, she should still be very angry with him. You know, there's something else that happens in this chapter and it's, I don't know if now is the right time to talk about it, but we're in the chapter, so yeah. I guess we'll go ahead and talk about it. They have this big thing where she talks about the story of the stone. And she goes through this story about a girl, and the girl is like the stones, and a boy gave her his stone, but then the boy threw the stone away, and then she had to keep on moving, you know, and, and it's this... It seems like this obvious parable about her and her circumstances and how she's been hurt. Right. By him, you know. And then he he doesn't quite know how to handle that. Oh, yeah. So she tells this whole story that's very obvious, like you said. And he says, and I wrote it down, page 973. I didn't know what to make of that story. (laughs) Dumbass. Dumbass. What's wrong with you? I never thought to ask Elodin about the Chandrian. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So yeah, so he doesn't know what to make of it. And in his attempting to sort of play along, he they're, you know, they're teasing each other and he calls up this wave, which I didn't know he had this power, but once again, you know, his sympathy, he can do whatever he wants. He calls up this wave that knocks her down. Now she says in the story that she has to be a stone. She has to go where the water takes her. And then the next thing we see is we see him calling up a wave and the water pushes her into him. So, so I think there might be a connection there in the, in the, in the, in the language, but nonetheless, she says, you cheated. I used honest trickery. There was no point prior to that where that I could see where she was tricking him. So does that mean her story is trickery? 
I, I think you just might have missed something there. That wouldn't be shocking. Wouldn't be the first time. I mean, they were kind of running around and like. No, she tricks him into closing his eyes and then she shoves him into the water. Oh. Oh, well then. I think that's what she was referring to. Well, then all of this has been for naught. <laughs> <laughs> I like where your brain was going, though, there. I mean, I, I still sort of have this thing where I still think she's a spy of some kind or something. Oh, I absolutely agree with you there. However, yeah. I think that um, what she was referring to by that was um, her shoving him. Yeah, I, I missed that then. That, that's much more That's much more uh, straightforward and obvious than the weird-ass line of reasoning I was going down, so. Right. But she does say to him, she says, you'd be amazed at things you hear if you only listen. And then she proceeds to tell him exactly what's going on with her, and he can't fucking hear it. I wonder if you noticed, too, in this section, the the way the dialogue between Quoth and Denna goes back and forth a little, it reminded me of the dialogue at times between him and Florian. Um, I don't know if it's iambic pentameter, but it has that sort of same poetic rhythmic feel. That lilting, yeah. Then the, and I think, I think it is. And the kind of word choices that make their dialogue at times fit in to that. I didn't pick up on it this time around, no. So I just think that's interesting, and I think it means that there's a significance there. You well, don't see it anywhere else in the books. No. Well, I don't think there's any question that Patrick Rothfuss puts a huge amount of emphasis into every word, and I think he edits like probably no other author edits, which is why it takes him so long to write these books. So that means that he doesn't use words in any sort of haphazard way, which brings me to another observation that I had that we'll kind of wrap up a little bit later. Okay. So, yeah, I I found this to be, this scene to be sort of the pinnacle of the, the frustrating way that Kvothe and Denna interact. But for me, Denna is much more sympathetic because she opens up a little bit to him yeah, absolutely. in her story of the stone. And she's saying to him, I'm broken. I've been thrown away. I don't know that I really felt that she was outright saying that she was thrown away by Kvothe, but she yeah, was thrown away yeah. by someone. Yeah. And she's gotten used to the, the feeling of falling. And she doesn't trust him, yeah. which when you look at Quill's behavior from her perspective, you can certainly understand why. why. Would she? Yeah. Well, and she comes closer to straight out saying that to him than at, at any, any other, other point. point. Absolutely. And then at the very end of the chapter, she gets angry with him because he has been, you know, frolicking around with all these other women and she is, you know, upset about it. You know, when he won't make any advances towards her. So how could she help but feel sort of slighted on one hand? And on the other hand, you know, she's sort of being judgmental of him because of his behavior towards towards other women. So. Right. And I, the, at one point he says, so they get together and he says, oh, the, the tension had just melted away. Everything was great. And he says... I knew it had just been a matter of waiting patiently until the tension passed. I was right. Everything's fine. You're like, yeah. no. No, you knucklehead. It's just- not. <laughs> it's not fine at all. 
you're digging yourself deeper into a hole. And then it it's stunning to me that he wants to go. I understand his compassion and and desire for Denna to be removed from a harmful situation. So I understand why he keeps wanting to go back to the Master Ash thing, but it's like he hasn't learned his lesson, and he's about to go put his foot square into his fucking mouth again when she completely turns it around on him right. and starts asking all the questions that he was going to ask. And I think that's just another example of what we've been saying from the very beginning, which is that this is all a matter of perspective. Like, from her perspective, he looks just like she looks to us. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think she's much more sympathetic. So there's another thing that I noticed in this in this section. And in the very beginning, you know, right after they kind of come back to Imre, and, you know, he goes back to his class, he said they had this very awkward you know, moment, there was a lot of silence between them. And then he had to go back to class the next day. He went to Adept Sympathy and Fenton beat him three times. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout this chapter, the word silence is used 10 times. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, I don't know if this is that 10 words that'll break a strong man. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the word silence 10 times in a row. I don't mm. think that's it. I, but what I do believe is that the silence that is killing Quoth, the thing that has robbed him of his power, the thing that has allowed him to not be able to call symp- to use sympathy, to not be able to use names, and to not be able to fight, is this silence. It's all tied to Denna. I definitely would agree that it's tied to Denna. Um, I have a speculation about that, which I want to get into in the ne- yeah the next chapter okay. as well. But one last thing in this chapter is as they they start off kind of tense, then they're getting along fine. Then you know she sees him shirtless, and then he gets vulnerable with her, but she shoots him down. You know, he at one point looks in her eyes and she asks, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And he says, love me. But it comes out like, love me. Yeah, it's You know, and she's <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> and, um, uh, and she says, oh, no, not that trap for me. I'll not be one of the many. Yeah. And that's you know? when she gets pissed. And yeah. And you're like, woman, can't you see that you're, you know, you're the only one. But how could she really? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, they get into another pseudo argument and she like braids her hair and the braid says, don't talk to don't me. Don't talk to me. So like you said, she's obviously very deft and fluent in this Yillish yeah. not talk that she can just do that without even looking. It's hard to braid your own hair. What? Every time I do it, I look like an asshole. <laughs> Well, and can you imagine doing it with the degree of intricacy that would require you to be able to somehow communicate language in it? I can't. You know, in a matter of seconds? On wet hair? No. (laughs) See, that's her knack. That's her fucking knack right there. 
All right, so 149. So chapter 149. Oh, we have to do have to mention that at the end of chapter 148, he gives her back her ring. Oh, yes. But unfortunately, it doesn't even seem to smooth things over. No, she's very touched. Some, but it's at the mentioning of Ambrose that silence returns again. Well, and again, it's these these half measures with communication. He says, oh, I got it back from Ambrose. Like, you could have said, oh, I burned down Ambrose's hotel room. Yeah. You know, and he's really mad at me. But he made it almost sound like, oh, maybe he was like, like locker room, like, hey, Ambrose, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about that dinner, you know. Hubba hubba. Wink, wink, (laughs) nudge, nudge. Can I have the ring back? You know. I'll do your laundry for a month if you give me the ring back. Right. So why not tell her that story? Anyway. Because they're on a British television drama. They are on a... Right. And the important things just don't get said. Right. So chapter 149 is called Tangled. And go ahead with the... So this is where Quoth discusses his love life with Fela and Sim. And then Fela tells him why he can't get a girlfriend. And then he goes off and he has a nice conversation with Aladdin. So I have top five things that we learn in this chapter. All right. Give it to me. All right. I only got one thing I learned. Number one is that Fela is an OTG now. One of the guys. Oh. (laughs) Which is kind of cool. That's pretty cool. Because she says, you know, she offers him a lady's advice. And he says, well, I'll take yours. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's kind of that nice, like, joshing. Uh, Number two, there's nothing wrong with a little side eye. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with that. Number three. And then there's And then there's looking. looking. And it is not the first time we've heard that. And sometimes when you're looked at, you need to go take a shower. Right. And it's not the first time that someone has said that about Quoth. Yeah. Um, so uh, once again, the secret between looking and looking is losing your virginity. I mean, I was going to say intent, but... You know, I mean, you might be onto something. But sometimes you can look so hard at something you don't see it. Yeah. So, number three is that Fella and Sim are adorable. Totes cute. We love that. Number four is that you couldn't pay Fella to get tangled up with Quoth. And she says, if we were together, I would expect you to leave me. And that's a very, I think, astute observation of him. And I just love how we see the interactions of how he's viewed by the other characters, how he views himself to make this really complex person. Yeah. And number five is that love is a blind deaf mute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not in love with her. I so, be in love with her. So after that little enlightening conversation, Quoth goes and has a conversation with Elodin and he kind of plops down next to him and they're eating grapes. And Quoth asks Elodin, what he would say about someone who is changing their name. And Elodin freaks out until he realizes that Quoth isn't talking about true names. He's talking about calling names. Yeah, I did not get this the first read through. So what's your take on it now? So, yeah. So the second time through, I'm like, or maybe I just, maybe it was late when I read it and I was tired. But anyway, second time reading it through, I'm like, oh, shit. You can change your name and and clearly it is a dangerous thing it's a bad idea it's a bad idea so therefore 
Quoth has done it. Yes. And I think that's what is in the chest. Is in the chest. Is, and that's what he why he has lost part of his power and has now become Coat. He did, didn't just change his calling name. He changed his true name. I think you're right. He somehow took part of himself and locked it in the chest. Yep. And now he can't get it out. And it's so sad. You know, he can't get it out. And that's why he can't do Break Lion. Yep. And he can't explode bottles of brandy anymore. Nope. It's really sad. So that's my theory about it. Yeah, I think it's a good theory. I like it. That was, you know, I feel like you had said that before. I did. I got a little. I got a little. You trigger got a little ahead of yourself. I did. <laughs> <laughs> but when I but when I was going back through and taking notes, that was kind of the conclusion that I came to as mm-hmm. well. So that, I mean, that's pretty much what I have with that. And Quoth gets his ring of air. We assume. I didn't. No, I assumed he was putting them on. I th- I think he really did it. Really? No, I thought he was putting them on. Time will tell. Yeah, exactly. So chapter 150 is called Folly. Yeah, so in chapter 150, Denna leaves, Hem becomes chancellor, and Quoth takes advantage of the situation to fatten his purse. So, you got your tinfoil hat ready? Uh, yeah. Put it on. Because we're going back, because I got another coincidence oh good give it to me because i got shit for this chapter so going back to our our train of thought about oh shit the chancellor was poisoned yep that's what i think because he was teaching him yillish yep so just like when the mayor was starting to dig into the amir his father suddenly falls ill and he has to give up his pursuit so and this whole book is like a giant 9-11 conspiracy. <laughs> it is. It's, it's loose change. It's the truther movement. It is the truther movie fantasy style. It really is. <laughs> like, how can they all be hiding in plain sight? This is all, it all goes back to George Bush. <laughs> I thought it was Beyonce. Well, you know, I but mean. Have you ever seen the two of them in, in the same room together? No, you haven't. You haven't. You haven't. And you never will. <laughs> no, I didn't think I didn't. Oh. So just to break it down a little bit more, because it's so exciting. Oh. So going back to the Amir being in the world, being agents devoted to keeping people away from knowledge about themselves. And if they are. So Lauren poisoned the chancellor. Maybe. Who knows? Or some agent, I believe, sees anytime Quoth is getting close to anything that has to do with the Doors of Stone, the Amir, the lockless box. We see these roadblocks. Very subtle. If it was any more overt, he would suspect. But just as he's happening to learn this Yillish language that might help him eventually decipher the box, his the one person who can teach it to him falls horribly ill suddenly. Yeah, which kind of relates back to, I was thinking about this. Um, we talked about the mayor and the Amir killing his father. And I still think that's true. But I'm beginning to speculate that it was for a different reason. Not because they wanted him to be mayor necessarily, because he was interested in them, but as a way to divert him off that trail. Oh, that's what I always thought. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. must have misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. To keep that him just occupied. as he yeah. started to really dig into that yeah. in not just a boyish fancy kind of way, yeah. 
suddenly his father dies and he has to abandon his pursuit. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agree. Okay. I thought you were taking that from a different angle, but okay, no, that's what I, I think as well. Yeah. And then, you know, Quilth shows up at the university. He starts researching the Amir. He gets himself banned. He gets himself back in. Lauren called those thugs to stab him. I don't know. I think there's probably a whole network out there. He finds out that Quoth is heading to Ventus and yeah. in it going to be in the vicinity of the lockless box, possibly. So he tries to send pirates after him to knock the ship out? Uh, who knows? Maybe. Or someone does. I don't know if Lauren would do that, but... So listen, what we're saying is jet fuel cannot burn hot enough to melt steel. So, you know, he gets there. He gets the information that he's going to get. He comes back. He starts learning Yiddish out of nowhere, inspired by wanting to know what was on the box. And yeah, yeah. They're like, why does this fucker want to know Yiddish all right, of a sudden? right. Well, and Puppet was probably there looking, and he said, oh, he's found where the Yilish story knots are. Mm -hmm. We got to do something about this. So it's all coming together into this glorious conspiracy, and what? I love it. I do, too. Yeah, the this is what's fun about, about this, you know. But the other thing, too, is I remember when Lauren had that uh, Giller walk in with the swords on his belt, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, this is no librarian. This is a library in the same way that Indiana Jones is an anthropologist, you know? That's, you know, one of the other, aim, you know, agents of the Amer. Because why would you, that just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this, you know, that, it, you know, you would send people off to find books, of, you know, equipped to the teeth with, I don't know, it's strange. So, no, yeah. I totally Totally agree. I think we're on the same page. So so the chancellor gets sick. He has to leave. He give up his duties as chancellor. Quill's Yillish lessons are gone. And Master Hem gets made the chancellor. So so with all this in mind, what's the chance that Elodin doesn't see what's going on? I don't think we know that. It's entirely possible that he does. Elodin, we don't know what he's what he knows. Yeah. Elodin who pulled the whole spade thing out at his testing that one term you know oh, like right like that he he could know what a conversation that was being had in the aeolian when he wasn't present well and we had an interesting comment um on twitter and on facebook from elliot elliot Cossum from yeah. buddy reads and he mentioned the idea of thumbs being hacked off as a common threat and or currency and the fact that Elodin offered Lauren the chance to cut off Quoth's thumbs as assurance that he would behave himself in the library. And I think there was some speculation that it was possible that was something commonly done by the Amir. Maybe. maybe. So it would be interesting if that, yeah. that came to fruition and that the mayor also showed interest in having a sack full of thumbs, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I tend to think it's just a more... Maybe these they're just maybe morbid. that's just something that's done in the, in the culture. But I, I think that's more likely. But but I don't know. It does it does cause you to question what Elodin knows about it because it seems. I'm wondering if the only reason why Elodin you know hasn't been poisoned by the Amir is because one they're afraid of him because he knows so many names, and two because they think he's half cracked. Well, and they wouldn't be wrong. So Quoth goes through admissions, his first admissions with Hem as the chancellor. Hem manages to get his tuition set at 
50 talents. He's convinced he's going to drive him off. And and Quoth just laughs all the way to the bursar. And then he takes yeah. his friends out for drinks and dinner. And, and every toast they drank was to Hem's folly. That's right. <laughs> that was a great... It was a great chapter. And so then we get into chapter 151, which is called Lux. And Quoth stops the story. And we get some very interesting conversations between him, between Chronicler and Bast. And we get a very enlightening scene with Quoth at the end where he is trying to open his chest. I want to take a quick step back and just sort of highlight that the last thing that we talk about in quote story from the past is Hem's folly. Yep. Like that is the last that we hear in these two books. I don't know that that's significant. It's just interesting that that's where he chose to end it. And then when he comes into the interlude, he says, if we go much further, it's going to get much darker. Yes. So something is clearly going to happen at the beginning of the next book which is going to take a much, much more darker turn, which we would expect because there's a lot of shit that's got to happen. There is a lot of shit that's got to happen. So, but anyway, so we go into this interlude and Quoth says it's time to end for the night. Bass and Chronicler, quote, discuss the Cathay. And then Bass leaves. And then after Bass leaves, we have the scene where Quoth is not able to open his box. He just can't get back into that box. We're going to talk about the box more later, too. Some You go into you get into a box when you're 16, 17 years old. And oh, but when you do it, it's OK. No, it's great. It's great. Definitely keep going. Spent all these years trying to get back in. But in all our hilarity, we missed something important about go the ahead. box. No, we'll talk about it later. It's oh, not, okay. not yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I want to talk about Bast and Chronicler. Yeah. And I loved this role reversal here. It was a big role reversal. Chronicler breaking, well, attempting to break into Bast's room, but he does crawl <laughs> through the window and kind of knocks some sense into him, literally. Yeah. So Bast is all morose because he's just still really upset about the cafe and his his rushy still being the way he is. And yeah. he just he just kind of walks upstairs. He's all dejected. He wraps a quilt around himself and he's just Sits sitting in the there cold room and chronicler chronicler says you know well we need 1991 from the cure yes that's exactly what he's doing <laughs> i think it was 89 actually but anyway yeah. so chronicler comes in and he's like we need to talk about this because you're being ridiculous you know and bass is like well you're being a stupid head and yeah. chronicler <laughs> You're being a big poopy head. <laughs> and uh, Bass says, I would rather fight Haliax himself than have speak 10 words with the cafe. And Chronicler says, you've been taught your whole life to fear this thing and your fear is making you stupid. So we get into a very kind of deep and interesting conversation about destiny and free will. So if you've got this being who knows the future and can set people out like plague ships, does anybody really have free will? Bast is raised to believe, no, you don't. Once you spoke to the cafe or talk to anyone who has, that's it. You're done. Your life is going to be a tragedy. Your course is set. And we certainly see evidence of that in Coat yeah. and what has, what has become of him. But then Chronicler's perspective is, you know what? I'll admit, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that maybe the cafe knows the future and can affect things, but it can't affect everything because if it could, everything would be horrible. It would be more horrible than it is. So yeah. 
given that maybe there's free will, maybe there's not, you might as well just go out and do what you want. And he he move, makes his point by slapping Bast across the face. And when Bast jumps up to beat the hell out of him, he says, the Cathay wants you to beat me up. You better not do it. And Bast stops. And he slaps him again and says, the Cathay knew you would do that. And he doesn't want you to beat me up. So you better beat me up. And Bast then, then gets the point that like, yeah. you know what? It can't be both things. So... So you just have to move forward the best you can, not knowing the future. Well, the other part, too, I think that is a fair conversation for us to have in a book that begins with the main character telling you all kinds of things about him that aren't true, is the idea that the Cathay is a creature of legend, and legends aren't always true. Felurian believes the Cathay does not lie and does not see things, you know, wrong, but... And clearly, when you go through, because I read this section on the Cathay through again this time, and when you read through that, you can see that, like, as the Cathay is talking to Quoth, it gets to see more. It's like it can start, the longer it looks at him and talks to him, the more it can look into his past, look into his heart, look into his future and see. But then Quoth kind of runs away pretty quickly, and he doesn't, I've always, I have always felt like, the Cathay didn't really get a chance to really work its magic. Also, apparently didn't bite him either, which is freaky as hell. So it leads me to believe that it, it's not as clear-cut as what Bast is saying, that you can, you know, it it's, can see to a degree and it can influence you, but not that it's going to set you on a course from which you cannot divert yourself. I agree, and I, I think just think it's a really interesting concept to to dig into a little bit and he also addresses the the whole concept of well Florian let him go so it must have been safe and bass is like yeah no yeah, you're you're looking for depth in a shallow pond there yeah. Florian is not she's about herself she, does she really care. does not yeah. care if he's a plague ship well Florian went through you know survived the creation war right so you know and if there's another huge war in, you know, in, in the Aetorian Empire is destroyed, she's not going to care. Like, why would she? Right. It's not going to impact her. Right. So Bast counters then by saying, well, you know, only a fool sits in a house and says, Joe, just because the fruit is sweet, nothing's that's burning down, that nothing's wrong. And Chronicler's like, yeah, but, you know, what are you going to do? You just, you're going to have to move forward and make the best choices you can. You know, and I think it really inspires him not to give up. And Bass says, you know, then gets up and is like, you're right. I'm going to go about my business. And we find out in the next chapter what that business is. We find out what that business is. And it's bad donkey. And then we have a cut cut to a scene where. So this is, um, yeah, now we cut to the scene with the chest. I'm sorry. Where um, Quoth is, is trying to open his chest. And we see him actually first trying to open it. And then he pulls out a couple of keys and tries to use those to open it. And obviously he's following a, a prescribed set of, of movements that are designed to open this chest and it doesn't open. Yeah. And it's so sad. Yeah. And this is where I thought he changed his name. Well, I, I didn't necessarily think that he changed his name and his name was in the box. I felt like Quoth changed his name and now the box won't open for him. I think that's true. And I, I'm not married to the theory that the name is in the box. I think it could just be 
maybe his shit. Something in the box is important. Oh, yeah. But I think that he changed his name and somehow then lost his ability. I definitely think that's true. And I think we can probably assume that that was the Cathay's intention for him. And certainly, you know, I wouldn't write off the Cathay as something that is, is completely made up or harmless because oh, agreed. the world, as Bass says, the world is burning down at the same time though. If the Cathay could manage any outcome that it wanted, you'd think it would manage to make itself able to leave the tree because we know that it can't leave the tree. It's stuck there. And I want to talk about that for a minute, too, because we got into a conversation with a listener about the lockless box. We were so uh, caught. uh, It was on Facebook. Yeah, it was Curtis. 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 Yes. So we were so caught up in the hilarity of Melowan's box smelling like lemons. Yeah, it's her smelly box. Her smelly box. (laughs) That we missed something really important. So Curtis mentioned that the wood in throughout this book is mentioned many times different woods smelling different ways describing different kinds of wood and um i actually looked up then the way that the wood of the cathays tree is described but yeah, we, bo- we both did and we both yeah we i know because i went in and woke you up <laughs> and said the cathays tree smells like lemons it smells like lemons <laughs> I don't even remember that. You don't remember no. that? I was too excited. I couldn't even let you sleep. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Well. So yeah. anyway, there you have it. The Cathay's tree smells like lemon. I had it written down the whole quote, but now I won't. Oh, I, have, I, won't look I have it written anymore. down. It says, I smelled a strange sweet smell. It was like smoke and spice and leather. Leather and lemon. And lemon. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then when he is describing the lockless box which he then sees a few months later, he says it smells maddeningly familiar, almost like lemon. So our speculation that we've come up with is that the lockless box is made out of the same type of wood that the Cathay's tree is in and that they are tied together. Somehow the Cathay has something to do with the doors of stone. That's my speculation. Yeah, which, you know, you got back to, and I'm really off the reservation here, but you, you get back to the idea of if Eax, the baddest mother shaper, is that dangerous, why not just destroy it? If the key, you know, if there's a key that can open it, why not destroy the key, right? But what if somehow destroying the key releases the, like, you know, what if there's a connection mm. there? I like that. That you can't do one without the other sort of sort of scenario. I don't know exactly what that would be because I'm just now, you know, processing it through my uh, brain pan here. But but what if there's some sort of connection there and that's why you can't, it's not as simple as all that. Well, and I just don't think it's a coincidence that the Lockless family has been plagued by bad luck for generations. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's 100% accurate. Not if they're toting around this Cathay Wood box, you well, What's know? the first thing we learn about sympathy, right? Is like the, the the idea of, what's the word I'm looking for? Likeness. Uh, there's a connection between things that are like, right? Yes. So what if the lockless box, if we break the lockless box to release the key... We also break the hold on the Cathay, and the Cathay is able to leave the tree. That is good. So now you get the key to the Doors of Stone, and the Cathay is free to go run loose. 
which that to me sounds like a doubly bad thing. (laughs) But again, you can't destroy it. You just have to hide it and potentially commit genocide against the Yillish people to hide it. Wow, I really like where we're going here. It's dark. I like it. <laughs> so the 152? 152. So I, I don't know what it's called. It's called Elderberry. Elderberry, yes. The writing in this is great, but my notes for it are simply Bass kicks some ass. Oh my God, that's what my notes say. <laughs> Bass kicks some ass, and it's awesome, is what that's, I wrote. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, and I love the book ending here that we have. Chapter one in this book is called Apple and Elderberry. Oh. And you know the, um, so we have the mercenaries, basically, that broke into the inn and beat Quoth up and robbed him and also took a couple of bottles of his liqueur, yep. one of them an elderberry, bottle of elderberry wine. And that's got to be the sapphire bottle that was referenced early in the book. Yeah. Um, or yellow. I'm trying to look it up right now. I don't think that part, or maybe I'm wrong. I didn't think that part was necessarily all that significant, but. Well, in the beginning, the, the book opens with a scene of Bast walking down the line of bottles, deciding he's going to get drunk. And so he's saying this, um, this rhyme, maple, maple, catch and carry, ash and ember, elderberry. And he's going down and, and at the end it's, you know, barrel, barley, stone and stave, wind and water. And then we don't hear the last word. Mm. And as he's walking down, he's pointing at, and he's deciding which ones he's going to drink. Yeah, um, yeah, that yeah. game as he's pointing back and forth. So now here in the last chapter, we get to hear what the last word is, and it is misbehave. Yeah. So Bast approaches this fire. We see the mercenaries there that robbed Quoth, and it becomes evident that Bast set Sent up them. the robbery, yep. hoping to get Quoth to bust out his ADEM fighting skills and remember who he was. And they say, oh, you know, let's split up the loot. And... um. Bast then repeats this rhyme again. He starts pointing to various things. Well, first he's pointing back and forth between the two bottles, and then he takes a drink of mm-hmm. the one that he's chosen. And then he starts pointing to things around, just all around him, landing on a burning branch, and then he picks that up. And then obviously he's pointing at the two men to decide which one he's going to kill first. Yeah, mm-hmm. And um, he recites that poem at the end, barrel barley, stone and stave, wind and water, misbehave and then it says his teeth were red in the firelight his expression was nothing like a smile yeah and we've seen that i just love the way we see that phrase repeated through yeah referring to the fae his expression was nothing like a smile it was no human his, laugh there's no human laugh yeah and um, it just gives me goosebumps the just la- a great way to end this book the writing is phenomenal really phenomenal so then we end of course with one more prologue another silence of three parts prologue Yep. And Do you have anything were, for that? Or? I did. There was a couple of different things I noticed in in there that are a little different from the other epilogues we've had. One of which is like in the second to last sentence, and maybe it was there, maybe I just didn't catch it before, um, but it said the silence is heavy as a great uh, great smooth river stone, which ties back to what oh, Dana talked about. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yeah, about, good right? catch. And the other one, and I don't, I didn't write down the exact um, phrase, but it's there in like the second to last paragraph. It talks about him making a perfect mm-hmm. step and a perfect movement, 
and he is practicing the katan. So I'll read the... Um, you have it? Okay. I'll read the couple of so sentences. So you came to the same conclusion I did? Yes. Okay. And I think it, there's some interesting implications there. So the man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant, and he moved with a subtle certainty of a thief in the night. He made his way downstairs. There, behind the tightly shuttered windows, he lifted his hands like a dancer, shifted his weight, and slowly took one single perfect step. So... What are the implications there? If he still knows the Catan, see, I'm very, like, this was the biggest thing that caused me to be like, what the fuck is going on? So so here's what I'm thinking, and it is not a mature thought in my head. I don't really like it, but I'm going with it. If he is still able to practice the Catan and take a perfect step and move with that level of grace, then he allowed those thugs to beat him up. The problem I have with that is then why is, why can't he open the box? Why can't he do sympathy? Like those things don't jive to me. Right. It's definitely a mystery. My first thought in reading that too was as well, is this all a show? Is he laying low? Is he, you know, gathering forces? Well, for all of quotes, you know, it's strange because we've seen so many times when he is able to be highly, incredibly perceptive and other times where he just doesn't fucking get what's right in front of his face, right? He's seeing but not, or he's looking but not seeing. So don't really know. But it in the end of the last book, we learn that Bast has been sending or, you know, spreading rumors, trying to get him to wake up. He's been doing what he can to stop Quoth from hiding. So it's not like this is the first thing he's done. So it would not surprise me if Quoth is on to him and is purposefully not giving him what he wants. I agree. And I think it's significant that in the chapter, I can't remember what number it was, but there's a chapter toward the end called Locks. And it's the one where he's trying to open the chest at the end. But the chapter opens with him deliberately saying to Chronicler, I'm going to leave this key in the door so the door is unlocked so you can get out if you need to. Yeah. And I wondered if he left that key in the door so that Bast could get out. Because that is when Bast then leaves to kill the mercenaries at that point. Bast left out the window, though. No, he doesn't. He walks out the door, I'm pretty sure. No, you're probably right. And in the beginning, we see Bast creeping into the inn. And then, you know, Quoth comes down later and says, oh, what were you up to last night? So I would not be at all surprised if Quoth knew what Bast was up to. And at least the fighting part was maybe a show. Yeah, it. the only, I mean, so on one hand, you have the issue with the Skrayel. Because he did fight off five Skrayel, which right. we believe, you know, based on the, from what we learned in the beginning of Name of the Wind, killing one of them is like nigh impossible to do. Right. And so he manages to kill five. So could he have really lost all of his fighting prowess if he killed five Skrayel? Now, would he be willing to do that because that was saving the town, you know, where he's not willing to kind of give Bast, you know, his moment, but he will step up when it's a legit threat you know, to something other than him, that wouldn't shock you. Quoth is 
more. He's got a little bit of a masochist streak, so that wouldn't shock me if that's the case. But the counterpoint to that is in the fight with the zombie, you know, male or whatever that thing is, he looks very much resigned to the fact that that thing is going to kill him and he is unable to do sympathy. Well, you know, that doesn't even convince me as much as the scene where he's alone with the box. Because any of those others, you could say, all right, he's playing some kind of long con here. Yeah. He's um, waiting for the right time to fight back against whatever is going wrong in the world or whatever. Mm. But at the same time, then we have this scene where he's alone in his room. There's nobody else there that he could be possibly trying to play. And sincerely and fervently trying to open this box and he cannot do it. Can't do it. And he's at that point, it says something to the extent of he looked like a man who received bad news that he knew was coming anyway. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely something wrong with him. And I think there's something to the idea that he has changed his name and lost some of his powers. However, I wonder how much of them he, he lost. It's hard to say. It also kind of explains why when, like a big part of that fight with the thugs was them, him saying, I almost forgot who I was. And him also yelling at Bast, stop trying to make me something I'm not. Right. You know, that he's not Quoth. You know, he changed his name. Stop trying to make me be that thing I no longer am. So good book. Good book. All right. So next week we're going to talk about the the lightning tree and slow. Well, okay. I didn't know Is we that... had decided that we were going to do the lightning tree. Oh, okay. Because I don't have it. And I don't know where to get it. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about, we're going to wrap up our, our time in Temerate. Yes. And we will bring up lightning tree stuff if we can. Yeah. Well, so we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All but right. we will definitely go over the slow regard of silent things. Right. And we will kind of wrap up with some last minute speculations and maybe talk about some spoiler stuff or theory stuff and kind of go on from there. So that'll be our big sort of conclusion for the King Killer Chronicle. One other thing to note, I want to bring this up now. So that'll be episode 30. After episode 30, we are going to take a break for a week. We will not be on the air that following week. So uh, we're going to have a week off. We'll be back after that to start the lives of Locke Lamora, but we are going to take a week between the King Killer Chronicle and starting this new project. So just want to give people a heads up ahead of time that we're going to take a little bit of time. It's going to be have been 30 straight weeks that we've done this without a break, so we need a break. No predictions this time. No predictions. But are you ready for some interactions? Yes, absolutely. Let's go over that. Yeah, we didn't go over it much last time, and I kind of felt bad about that, uh, but we were running really over. But uh, I do want to make sure that we go over some this time and talk about a number of really awesome interactions that we had uh, from our listeners. I want to dig a little bit deep. One of the things I thought was quite hilarious is we have two listeners, Adam and Kingles, who we've brought up several times on the show, who are both from Liverpool. Well... They did not realize that they were both for Liverpool. And then we got into kind of a conversation and they were like, hey, you're from Liverpool. I'm from Liverpool. I love it. (laughs) And then they proceeded to talk and go back and forth on Twitter 
and I could only understand about half of what the hell they said. It was so funny. You know, it was like they just got into this, you know, deep lingo, and I was like, what the hell are you guys talking about? It was super Liverpoolish. It was. It really was. I thought it was quite funny. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So we also have a comment here from Tim Hoffman, who is at Tim2, the number two, underscore art. And he says, um, last week I kept my composure until you said it smelled like lemons. <laughs> and then I lost it. I laughed about that all week. Yeah, that was a fun one. So he also said, um, have you considered that Quoth gets Denna's true name and locks it away like Jack's? locked the moon's name away Mm. which i thought was interesting wow that is a really good theory so it could be you know we do think it all stems around denna and there does appear to be that story within a story sort of precedent to set that so i think that's not one i've really spent a lot of time weighing but i like it i do like it now the other thing he said and i i went back and for a couple of reasons, reread the part about the Cathay. But he said, did you notice that the Cathay talks in like 10-word clips? Hmm. But I went back and I reread it, and I don't know if he's referencing maybe a particular part. Maybe like there's a, a really in, important moment where the Cathay only speaks in 10-word clips. Because when I went back and read it, that's not what I found. I found it to be you know, the, the sentence length to be varied. So I don't know if there's maybe just something in particular that he's referencing. So I don't know. I missed that there. Uh, David Emery, who is at Pleasant Liar on Twitter, said, Gotta say, the prequel news killed any spark of excitement for me for the TV show. So he was on board with you. He was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not down with this. I mean, I'll watch it. I, I hope would, it's good. I would definitely have preferred it be the King Chronicle. Yeah. Not a prequel. But I'm trying to stay positive and look at it on the bright side. Jason Michael Cox, who is at jbird underscore 531, said, I'm stuck between the podcast and Stranger Things right now, which is probably the best compliment we've ever been given. Because <laughs> Stranger Things rocks. Definitely. And uh, he also said he bought The Lies of Locke Lamora, so that's very awesome. Sweet. So excited for that. So Ian, uh, at, uh, Ian James Crone and Ian Crone said, Quoth through the fight with the soldiers. Yeah, so he's on he's on board with that theory too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he also said the theory about the death of the old mayor blew his mind. I can't believe it. Like I didn't I didn't think about that for the chancellor of getting poisoned. That your face there was so awesome. That was another mind blower. I was wow. so glad I waited to the podcast to tell you about that. Oh, that was a good one. It was hard. I wanted to wake you up. <laughs> So Daryl Mansell at Sea Delicious said, humans do have a mating season all year long. But I'm bumped. He also said he caught the George S. Patton reference last time, which... Which I did not. Having listened back through the uh, podcast, that was a really awkward, uh, really awkward thing for me. But oh well, it got across. Uh, Wing Zero, who is at Rashad underscore Samuels one, said, lightning tree? What are you guys going to do about the lightning tree? And that's... Uh, I don't know where it is. Like It's in an anthology that you can get. Which is also the one that has, I think, the Rogue Prince or something in it. It's called yeah, Rogues. Yeah. And yeah. I know they have it on Kindle. Um, so it has, I mean, 
I'm definitely interested. I'm going to read it eventually when I when I look at it and see that it's got stories by Joe Abercrombie, um, Scott Lynch, who is the author of the Gentleman Bastard series we're yeah, going yeah, to read yeah. next. Uh, it's definitely going to be worth a read. So Yeah, so yeah. So, okay, that's something we'll have to pick up. I- I'm going to probably at least get it on my Kindle. Uh, so Theo at the OGB has opinions about slow regard, which we will get into get into at another time people feel strongly about it one way or the other they do yeah i I have a feeling my having read nothing about it not knowing anything about it i'm gonna this will be my prediction for the episode i think it's gonna be well written and cute and have zero plot um having read about 10 or 15 pages so far i'd say you're probably right so uh, Elliot Cossum at Buddy Reads with PhD said, Tinfoil hat theory, Hem and the mayor are Amir and they're fascinated with thumbs. Mm. And then he went back, as we've kind of already talked about in, in Facebook and kind of fleshed it out yeah. with the observation about Elodin. Judd Taylor on uh, on Facebook said, picked up a copy of Lies of Loch Lamora this weekend. Woo-hoo! That's right. And he's excited to make far-fetched theories and predictions alongside us. And then Curtis W. Franks talked about Meloan's smelly box, which we already talked about. <laughs> that was mind-blowing to me. You know, as many times as I've read this and as carefully I've read it, that there could be still something that huge that I've never picked up on before. I just, why I love this book so much. I, to me, the books where you can read them over and over again and pick up more and more and expand on the story you know, that that to me is what I love so, so much about fantasy, particularly the fantasy that's out nowadays. You know, you, you don't find as much of that in in the earlier stuff. But nowadays, it's almost like a, a melding of like fantasy along with elements of mystery, not like a mystery novel. Right. But where like just this further and further unveiling of the story. And to me, it's fascinating. I think we are in a golden age of fantasy writing. I would agree with that. You know, you know, as, as great as the Lord of the Rings is and was, I think the writing today is better. I just do. You know, so it's a great thing. So we also got a new five-star review on iTunes. Oh, thank you. So thank you. Not somebody who left a review. I'm sorry, they didn't leave a review, so we can't call you out individually. But you know who you are, and we thank you very, very much for it. So wrap up next week, Slow Regard of Silent Things, kind of the end of the rest of King Killer. We'll figure out what we're going to do with the lightning tree. And then we are going to take a break. And when we come back for episode 31... We will be beginning The Lies of Locke Lamora. The we- Lies of Locke Lamora. So if you don't have it yet, you want to read along, go ahead and grab that. Yeah. And so, we'll have to, by next episode, we'll have to have the chapters so we can let people know what chapters. Next episode, we will have it broken down yeah, into yeah. To what chapters we'll be doing. <sighs> this is a good episode. This was great. That was really good. Anything else to add? Nope, that's it. Okay. If you like us, give us a review on iTunes. If you really like us, tell your friends. Pip us out, yo. There you go. You got your part. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.